Let's pray. God, this morning, before, we, before I lift up some specific requests about how we spend the next few minutes, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for authentic, authentic life, fellowship. God, I'm thankful for um, what I hear about what's going on there. I hear about just a real community attentive church that is engaging need in our community, and I'm, I'm thankful for that, Lord. I'm, I'm thankful that those needs are met with help and good news, and I pray that you would use that. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified through that, that the kingdom would be advanced. I pray for the, the pastor of Authentic Life and for his family, that you would um, bless them in worship. I pray that he would be fueled by worship, that you would guard his heart from just doing a job, but that it would be a compelling call on his life and a burden for context that will see him through difficult periods and um, temptations and all the things that all of us face but seem especially um, damaging when it happens to the pastor of a church. pray that you would guard his worship, guard his marriage and his family, that his marriage and family would be first, even above the ministry of authentic, authentic life. Lord, we pray that the church would be blessed as a result of that, that your people would be equipped, uh, that they would be fueled by worship, and uh, you'd be glorified. Lord, I, want, I have some uh, specific things to ask about how we spend these next few minutes. I feel like it's a, um, a very um, dangerous passage and one that's very easily misunderstood very easily miscommunicated, can be under-communicated, over-communicated, can just be wrong. And God, I'm thankful for the time that you have guided me this week uh, for the, the old dead guys that loved you and are with you now that have written down rich and strong, helpful things that have guided me. I'm thankful for my elders, fellow elders that have helped me in this uh, preparation this week. I'm thankful for time talking with Christy and uh, with the staff this week and all those things coming together to where this sermon has been heavily vetted before it's ever even presented to your people. It's been tested with the scripture. Lord, I pray that even in the delivery of it that you would guard my tone, that you would guard my um, maybe even personal emotions that I may have and that the only thing that would happen this morning would be what's in your perfect will for how we spend these next few minutes. That it would be squarely true and that your people would hear it and embrace it and heed it and respond to it. I'm thankful, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, please. If you're visiting this morning, we're glad you're here. We're thankful that you've joined us this morning. We have been in Hebrews not exclusively, but especially for the last few years, a couple of years, I forget how long it's been at this point, um, and we are in Hebrews 10 now, these last few months we've made, we've covered some ground, uh, nearly six chapters worth of Hebrews, uh, considering Christ as high priest, landing in three really important exhortations in chapter 10, and we're picking up right after those exhortations in chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. I'm going to read it. This morning, we're going to spend our time. It sounds like this. Uh, uh, Kyle, 
or Aaron, it sounds like it's a little bit feedback type, loud, like maybe I'm, it might just be me hearing it, so it may not sound that way out there. Verses 26 through 31 is where we're going to be focusing this morning. I plan on getting much louder later, so that's why it's really important you turn me down now. I'm just kidding. I hope I might, but no promises, I won't. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the fourth warning of the book of Hebrews and is likely one of the strongest warnings in our Bible, this passage I just read to you. The first warning in Hebrews takes place in chapter 2, verse 1, where the Hebrews preacher is warning his people not to drift away for fear that they may be forever lost. The second warning is in chapter 3, verse 12, warning them not to turn away to unbelief, to turn away from the living God to unbelief. The third warning takes place in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, warning of the dangers of apostasy. Apostasy, if that's the word that you're hearing for the first time or it's a word that you're hearing that I'm not sure what that means, just to summarize it very easily, very briefly, apostasy means rejecting the faith. In this case, bailing on Christ and his people. This fourth warning is also having to do with apostasy. And you're going to hear this throughout the morning. Context is king. Context is going to be the only thing that we have that's going to help us make sense of what's being said in this passage. What I would like to do first is sort of unpack the passage a little bit. I want to just point out some of the furniture in the passage, in the room, so to speak, so that we can move around it for a few minutes. Unpack the luggage so that we're familiar with it to the point where we can make some sense of it. So beginning in verse 26, the word for is important. I'm not going to tell you why it's important right now. I just want you to know, make a little mental note. You can underline it, you can circle it, or you can just in your notes point out that the the word for, three letters there, is key to making sense of something later. For if we, I want you to understand right off the bat, this we tells us, and this book, who it's written to, tells us this message is not for lost folk. This message is written to the church. This we here are people who are part of a, what we would call today, a messianic Jewish church. A church that either in part or large part are in whole are Jews who have believed that Jesus was the Messiah and are trusting him in faith and following him and have become a church likely in Rome. This message is for church folk, not for lost folk. Next, this phrase, go on sinning deliberately. This is going to be what we're after for the entire morning. 
making sense of this phrase. If you wanted to write just kind of what, what, what we're after, you could just imagine in your head a little bullseye on that phrase. To make sense of what's being said here, we have to make sense of going on sinning deliberately. After receiving a knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth, just to briefly share with you, is in what we would call shorthand or a way of saying after coming to a relationship with God and his people. We would call it, I'm putting quotations, you know, air quotes here, we would call this salvation. I'm not going to call it salvation in the strictest sense, but I'm going to call it salvation in the things that often go with or do go with a public profession of faith, baptism, Baptism meaning entry into the covenant people, joining God and his people in covenant. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, and that knowledge of the truth being profession of faith, baptism, covenant relationship with God and his people, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. We'll talk about this more in a little bit. This is the first of two really terrible outcomes. Well, there, this whole, whole little paragraph has lots of that, but this is the first one. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The benefits and the blessings of the cross have been removed. The second thing is in the next verse. And there's a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. This is a reference to hell, people. This is not a reference to a sunburn. It's not a reference to some sort of close call. This is a reference to eternal judgment and a fury of fire that has been set aside for God's enemies. So just let this hit you for a moment. Just in the brief unpacking, as we're looking at the furniture around the room, don't mistake, in the same room, in the same paragraph, we have thoughts for church folk, we have a warning of losing the blessings of the cross and of landing in hell with God's enemies. I've had like psychosomatic problems this week, physical problems that I think have to do with the, the burden of carrying this message here this morning. How often do we step into that room together as a church? We haven't. We did back in Hebrews chapter 6. And it was a precarious little trip we made. You can understand why you may have never heard a sermon from this passage before. Because, man, I feel like it's a cobra. Easily mishandled. Somebody that knows what they're doing can handle one. But, boy, it's dangerous. Gracious sakes alive. In the same room, we have a mixture of things that are really crazy, hard to make sense of. Thoughts for church folk, a warning of losing out on the benefits of the cross and of landing in hell with God's enemies. Let's look at verse 28 and 29. Verses 28 and 29 sort of go together. This is what yet another example of a lesser to greater argument that the Hebrews preacher uses throughout the book of Hebrews. In this case, he's saying, if those who thumbed their nose at the law of Moses got the death penalty... How much worse will it be for someone who thumbs their nose at Christ? The law was a wonderful thing, but in contrast to what we have in Christ, it pales in comparison. So transgressing the law compared to transgressing what Christ has done and thumbing your nose at it, 
how much worse will it be for that one? And then in verse 30, there's some quotations here from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. You might be familiar enough with the book of Exodus, books of Exodus and Deuteronomy to know that there were a couple of songs that Moses wrote. One was a song after deliverance from Egypt, or the armies of Egypt, after they crossed the Red Sea. He wrote a song about God's victory. You might be familiar with some other songs in our Bible, like Deborah's song. Deborah wrote a song about the overwhelming victory over Sisera and Jael driving the tent peg through his head. It's a crazy song, but it's a song about God's victory. This song that I'm referring to here in Deuteronomy 32 is not one of those victory songs. It mentions some of the things that God has done, but the point of Deuteronomy chapter 32, Song of Moses, that particular song, it's a song about the upcoming and future and imminent apostasy of Israel. In some ways, it's a sad song. It's a song about what Israel is going to do. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses is writing from Nebo, looking over into the promised land. The nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land, and he writes this song saying, here's what you're going to do when you go over there. You're going to be apostate. And they prove that they were. And he says, here's what God is going to do. God will judge his people. You could rename the song, God is not a chump. That's what the song is about. And here this Hebrews preacher grabs some references to that song, some quotations from that song saying, God will judge his people. Man, there's a weird, weird view of the gospel this side of Christ that misses out on God as judge. God is absolutely love, yes. But God is still judge. He is still just and he is still going to judge his people. I'm going to save verse 31 for the very last part of our morning. It's a way to sort of summarize our morning. But what I want to do in the next few minutes, now that we sort of have the the luggage unpacked, now that we have the room set up, and you see what's in the room, an interesting, almost alarming mixture of furniture, we're going to look at three things. What is going on in this ongoing sin? What is actually taking place there? Second, how bad will it be for this one who's participating in that? And third, we're going to look at what this person looks like. And there are two pictures there we're going to look at. That's how we're going to spend the morning. Let's begin first with what is this sin? In verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, what is ongoing deliberate sin post-knowledge of the truth post-salvation, we could grab verse 29 as well, post-being sanctified in the blood of the covenant. That's the connection to joining God's people in covenant relationship through baptism. What's going on with this sin after entering into a covenant relationship with God and his people? What is this? First, I'm going to start with what it's not. This has been wildly misunderstood over 2,000 years of church history. In the second century, there was a guy named Hermas that wrote a book called The Shepherd of Hermas. And Hermas wrote that after you were baptized, or in baptism, you were cleansed from all of your sins, all your previous sins, and you were allowed one more sin after baptism. We could call it a mulligan. You had one mulligan. But after that, you're out. 
you lose your baptism or you lose your salvation. Another guy named Tertullian, who was one of his contemporaries, said, you know what? That we should even give room for a mulligan. We should, I mean, baptism, post-baptism, there should be no more sin. Period. This passage has been wildly misunderstood. In the second and third century church, there's evidence that there was a there was a large part of the church that actually practiced baptism as late as possible for fear that someone might sin afterward. Like homeboys on his deathbed, let's get him out of the deathbed now. Now's the time to dunk him in hopes that he doesn't sin one more time and lose it all. I would expect that Hermes's church was quite small as was Tertullian's, even smaller. Or maybe there was just lots of turnover (laughs) as people sinned and then they're out. I don't know how Hermas and Tertullian went the distance in that church because if I know me, I know them. So it's not that. I'll tell you what also it's not. This is not referring to someone who professes to love the Lord and yet falls again to a besetting sin like the sin of pornography like the sin of laziness, the sin of gluttony, the sin of anger. You could insert any sin in there. That's not what this is. These all involve some measure of intentionality, no doubt. But that's not what's being dealt with here. If this were the case, churches would still be quite small, don't you think? Do any of you ever struggle with any sin? I do. I'm thankful that's not what this means. A passage that's encouraged me. I'll I'll share with you where it is. I'm already there. If you'd like to turn there, you can. But I want to read from 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2, a little passage that's helpful in regards to this. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Think about what he's just said. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And then the next thing he says, don't sin. You're all sinners and you're a liar if you say otherwise. And oh, by the way... Stop sinning. Don't sin anymore. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What a sweet passage for those of you who struggle, for those of us who struggle with besetting sins of any sort. We have an advocate. We have Jesus Christ who is our propitiation. I'm going to use this word later. I'm going to use this imagery later. So I want to just briefly remind you of what propitiation is. A good way to think of this word propitiation is to think of it like wrath absorbing. Christ is our wrath absorber. Think of it like a big umbrella, like God's white, hot, holy wrath is directed at sin. So if you have sin in your life, you're in trouble. That is, until you step underneath the umbrella of Christ's wrath-absorbing protection, his umbrella of grace, where you find shade and protection from his judgment. That's what we have in Christ. That's good news. I'll use that imagery later. So that's worthwhile to consider. Don't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate. 
what sin is going on here specifically then? If it's not what Hermas and Tertullian taught, if it's not those besetting things that we all struggle with from day to day, those things that he hopefully gives us some victory with over time, that he does if you are pursuing him and walking with him, context is king to help us make sense of this. What this is specifically is the sin of apostasy. Remember where this church is headed. Remember the warnings that I've mentioned this morning. The warnings don't fall away from Christ. This church that appears in Rome is considering bailing on Christianity because Christianity is hard in first century Roman Empire. Wouldn't you imagine? Especially in Rome. Man, there's some evidence that they lit their gardens with Christians. Burning, flaming Christians. There's plenty of evidence that the the synagogue itself, the Jews themselves, persecuted Christians. Being a Christian in first century Rome is hard, and they're considering bailing on Christ and going back to Judaism. They're not bailing on religion. They're not becoming Buddhists or atheists. They're going, falling back to Judaism and Yahweh and the sacrificial system. The sin that's being dealt with here is the sin of apostasy, of bailing on Christ and his people. You could read verse 26 this way. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth that there is no salvation apart from Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The ultimate unforgivable sin is to absolutely and resolutely break covenant with your, cousin, with your covenant husband. It's unforgivable because you've stepped out from under the umbrella of propitiation, the umbrella of grace, back out into the white hot sun of his holy wrath. That's why it's unforgivable. His umbrella protects us from all other sins, but you bail on him, what else do you have? That's the sin that's being dealt with here. Part two of the message is asking the question, well, how bad will it be for this one? Is it just going to be a sunburn or is it going to be worse? According to this passage, the sacrifice for sins is removed. The benefits of the cross are removed. Judgment looms and a fury of fire that's reserved for God's enemy. The one that's guilty of this, the one that continues in this, the one that goes on sinning in the sin of apostasy has set aside the one thing that will protect them from God's holy judgment. They've stepped out from under the umbrella of grace into the white-hot sun of his holy wrath. I thought in some ways it's essentially like trading Christ, what this someone does here. They're trading the wrath that Christ absorbed in 400 agonizing minutes on the cross. And the benefits that come with that 400 agonizing minutes for an eternity of their own agony and judgment in hell. That's exactly what's taking place here. And it's heartbreaking when you think about it. You bail on Christ, you are going to face God's wrath, period. And as bad as it was to set aside the law of Moses where you get the death penalty, it's so much worse to set aside Christ and his work. It's the ultra death. It's the mega death. 
It's like comparing a firecracker with a nuclear bomb or a BB gun with a cannon because the apostate, the one who continues in the sin of apostasy, has spurned the Son of God. He has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. It comes right from this passage. And he has outraged the spirit of grace. If you've ever read the passage in Matthew 12 that's dealing with blaspheming the Holy Spirit and the unforgivable sin, that's what's taking place here. You have outraged the spirit of grace if you continue in this, spurning the very umbrella of protection that you have, the only thing to protect you. And you're profaning the blood of the covenant by which you were baptized and brought into the covenant people. If you bail on Christ, I thought about it like this. If you bail on Christ, you're like a warrior that has been through a thousand battles and has been protected from a million arrows and a thousand swords by your trusty shield. Your shield is your friend. Your shield has kept you alive. But for some weird reason, you're pitching your shield and saying, I'm going to go without it. That's effectively what's taking place when you bail on Christ. You're toast. Now, the third part of the sermon I want to deal with two pictures of apostasy. There's one picture of apostasy that's really easy. And likely, most of you in, your, in this room have, if you've been in, in the faith any period of time, you know of someone who's left the faith and said, I'm renouncing it. I'm going to become an atheist or agnostic. I'm just not going to believe anything. Or I might be a Buddhist or a Muslim They've bailed on Christianity for something else. You likely have somebody in your head. That's an easy one. The two people I'm going to deal with in the next few minutes may surprise you. The first one, I'm calling the a surprising apostate. I want, to, I want to remind you that we're dealing here with a passage that is written to church folk. We're not dealing with a passage that's written about some sort of notion some sort of ethereal, sort of airy idea. We're writing, he's writing here about real people. People that if they were now, they would likely have a Facebook page. I mean, really, they have an address where a, mail, where a mailman drops off mail for them every day. They would have a personality. You might have some history with them. You might be related to them. You might have some really fond history with them. We're talking about real people. I want to remind you of that as we spend the next few minutes looking at these next two surprise apostates that we're not just talking about a notion. The first one is the surprise apostate or the free agent Christian. And I'm putting air quotes around Christian. The surprise apostate I'm calling the free agent Christian. If you're not still in Hebrews 10, then turn back there. If you've turned away from Hebrews 10 for some reason, I told you this morning you're going to hear a phrase over and over again. The phrase context is king. We can't make sense of this apart from context. We might land with Hermas or Tertullian, or we might not, but we don't really have any plan apart from being obedient to context. But when we climb into context, we find we can make some sense of this. I told you early on this morning, the word for, these three little words, this or three little letters, this tiny little word had tremendous meaning. The word for in verse 26 does something to us. It should, if you're studying your Bible, it should point you to what's in front of it. 
It should point you right above to what's in front of it. We know big picture. I mentioned this morning, we've got six chapters of Christ as high priest. Here's what Christ has done. A better covenant, a better sacrifice, a better blood, a better tent, a better order. I mean, all the things that we consider together, six chapters, and then it landed in the paragraph above it with three wonderful let us's. Let's look at this passage together because it's connected. You're going to see why in a moment. Beginning in verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's just summarized six chapters of Hebrews. Since Jesus is what he is and what he's done, let us, there's three let us's, and they are beautiful. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's a second let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then the word for. For if we go on sinning deliberately. These two paragraphs are connected. You can hardly make sense of one apart from the other. In some ways, they are point and counterpoint. In some ways, this is the appropriate response to Christ as high priest and all that he's done. And then that next paragraph that we're looking at this morning is the inappropriate response to Christ as high priest. The paragraph I just read with the let us's is the faithful response. It is faith in response to Christ as high priest. The paragraph we're looking at this morning, though, is the faithless response to Christ as high priest. It's what faithlessness looks like. When you see this thing in context, then you see and realize that apostasy isn't just saying, I'm quitting Jesus and becoming a Buddhist. The point I'm making here that's huge in our context is that apostasy is the absence of of drawing near, holding fast, and considering how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Man, let that hit you for a moment. If this is the faith response to Christ, this is the faithless response to Christ. The faith response, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider the faithless. Let us whatever. What even us? Who needs an us? That's the faithless response to Christ as high priest. The neglect of these things, drawing near, holding fast, and considering how to stir one another up to love and good deeds is tantamount to rejecting all of them. The neglect is the same thing as rejecting them. And something I want you to see here that's so important that we don't really connect to because we're a bunch of individualistic Americans, modern Americans at that. We think like individuals. It's not an insult. We just do. 
It's hard for us to read this passage and notice the we's and the us's and to make sense of those things. But in the Greek, let me help you a little bit. The let us draw near, that draw near is a plural verb. The let us hold fast is a plural verb. The let us consider is a plural verb. All three of these verbs are done together. They're like the verb kiss. You can't tell somebody how I want, Bill, I want you to kiss. You're like, well, kiss who? It takes two to kiss. It takes two to embrace. It takes two or more to hold fast. It takes two or more to draw near. It takes two or more to consider how to stir up. It's like if you were to try and ride a bicycle built for two by yourself, you may get a little distance, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to promise you it's dangerous. You're going to crash and it's going to hurt. You can't seesaw by yourself either. Think of these verbs like seesawing. It won't go well if you try and do them alone. In fact, they don't work alone. Drawing near, holding fast, and considering how to stir one another up are done with and in the church. They're church verbs. It's what the church does. It's what people do, faithful people do together in response to who Christ is as high priest. I love the imagery of the first one. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Let us. I can start naming your names and naming the family members and the family names that are part of this church body. I could name your name and say, let us, let all of us draw near in a, the definite article, a says one true heart in full assurance. That's the people of God coming together as one. The next verse does the same thing. Let us hold fast the definite article. Or I don't know what, it may not be the definite article. A is not a definite article. Let me rephrase that. The is the definite article. A just says there's one. The says there's one as well. The confidence. Let us as families, as individuals, hold fast together as the church in one confidence. Man. In the confidence of our hope. The church condenses these verbs into one movement together as we draw near, as we hold fast. Romans 12, I think I mentioned last week, does the same thing. Romans 12 does the same thing beautifully. It says, brothers, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the church. That's a bunch of us's coming together and being and doing these verbs as one. What I want you to see here that this is the surprise apostate for me, and it may be surprise apostasy for you. What I want you to see is apostasy from the church is apostasy from Jesus. How could you possibly draw near and hold fast and consider how to stir one another up? to love and good deeds, apart from the us's and the we's. They're plural verbs that are done together as the church. Apostasy from the church is apostasy from Jesus. If someone bails on these verbs or thinks they can go it alone and get on their seesaw 
or their bicycle built for two by themselves. They have bailed on Jesus and they're following a Jesus of their own making. That's surprise apostasy for you, I bet. Because we're swimming in that context. We live in a context where people, man, I, I have quite fond of Jesus, in fact. But I really don't like the church. <laughs> it's made up of all those people. <laughs> oh, they get on my nerves. But I love Jesus. First John says, if you, don't, if you say you love God and you don't love your brother, you don't love God at all and you're a liar. We live in a context that is saturated with this type of apostasy. As I was studying this passage and preparing for this sermon, I had this thought in my head, there's no salvation apart from the church. And I thought, man, that just sounds so dangerous. I mean, I wasn't like fond. I'm not fond of danger. I'm okay with facing it, but I wasn't like, oh, goody, danger. My thought was, wow, is this passage communicating that apostasy, functional apostasies to bail on these verbs that we do together as a church, does that mean there's no salvation apart from the church? And I actually thought, I'm just going to Google that phrase and just see what happens. And the first thing that came up was a write-up about the Bishop of Carthage from the third century. His name was St. Cyprian. In Latin, he wrote, Extra Ecclesium Nulla Salus. There's no salvation apart from the church. Third century AD. I read it and I thought, oh, Bishop of Carthage, that sounds real Catholic, you know. Um, Saint Cyprian, that's kind of a Catholic thing. Saint this, Saint that. And I thought, well, that sounds really Catholic and that kind of scares me a little bit because we're not Catholic. And Catholic things scare me a little bit because I know we're not, we're Protestants. I thought, I want to look at this a little bit further. I found that this phrase, extra ecclesium nulla salus, or something to this effect, is still part of the Catholic catechism. For those of you who come from Catholic background, it may be familiar to you. There's no salvation apart from the church. And in some cases, and depends on which pope is saying it, they're communicating that if you're not part of the Catholic church, there's no salvation, depending on what pope is communicating it. So you can imagine as I'm studying this, in my study, I'm kind of going, whoa, this is scary. What am I looking at here? And I kept studying and found that this is not just a Catholic thought. I found that our Reformed and Protestant fathers taught and believed the same thing. Listen to what Martin Luther said. This is from a sermon in 1521, a Christmas sermon from Luke chapter 2. It's four years after he nailed the 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. So this is four years after the beginning of the Reformation. Listen to what Martin Luther says. Therefore, he who would find Christ must first find the church. How should we know where Christ and his faith were if we did not know where his believers are? And he who would know anything of Christ must not trust himself or build a bridge to heaven by his own reason, like riding a bicycle bill for two by yourself. But he must go to the church, attend and ask her. Now the church is not wood and stone, but the company of believing people. You got to love that. 
One must hold to them and see how they believe, live, and teach. They surely have Christ in their midst. Listen to what he says next. For outside of the Christian church, there is no truth, no Christ, no salvation. I'm feeling a little bit set free reading that from Martin Luther. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not a kook. Martin Luther, he's one of our Protestant fathers. He's the reason I'm not wearing a funny hat and a robe. And we're not Catholic. I got a lot of respect for Martin Luther. I'm reading that going, okay. And that's after the Reformation, not before the Reformation began. So it's not in his Catholic days. And then I thought, man, that's interesting. And here's what else I found from someone else whose shoulders we also stand on as Protestants. A guy named John Calvin. He wrote a book called The Institutes in 1536 that whether you like John Calvin or not, a big part of the Protestant faith, all the denominations that are Protestant, like it or not, stand on what he's written in The Institutes and stand on his shoulders. Listen to what he wrote about the church in The Institutes in 1536. For those to whom God is father, the church must also be mother. Let that hit you. For those to whom God is father, the church must also be mother. Beyond the limits of the church, we can hope for no forgiveness of sins and no salvation. Revolt from the church is denial of God and Christ. You can't go those verbs alone. If you do, you're bailing on Christ. So it is all the more vital to beware of such a disastrous rebellion. It is tantamount to trying to destroy God's truth for which we deserve to feel the full force of his anger. I think he must have been reading Hebrews. Wow, the fury of fire is in store for that one. There could be no worse crime than blasphemously and shamefully breaking the sacred marriage bond which the only begotten Son of God has condescended to make with us. What I want you all to understand, people of God, in this context, in 2013, gracious, 14, what are we in? I lose track. I don't even know how old I am anymore. The notion of a Christian being separate and on his own apart from the church is a babe. That notion is a baby in the life of the church. If you were to take 2,000 years of church story and church belief and church understanding and, sup- or in, and events and superimpose them on the face of a clock, put the cross at high noon, 12 o'clock, come around the clock here. I'm, I know I'm going the opposite direction. Come around the clock. About 2 or 3 o'clock, St. Nicholas slaps Arius all up in his face because Arius taught that there was a time when Jesus was not. That's what St. Nicholas is famous for in my book. That's about 2 or 3 o'clock. Keep on going around. About 6 o'clock are the Crusades. Keep on going around. About 9 o'clock would be the Reformation, Wittenberg Doors, 1500 A.D., About 11.30, 11.45 is when this idea shows up that you can be a Christian apart from the church. It's a babe. That whole notion 
came up like yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. And here we are, ironically, people of God, in a context that is saturated with that idea. <gasps> How we got here, I don't know, but we're here. We're here. And I believe with everything in me that Satan would like nothing more than to dupe thousands of people into believing they can love and know Jesus without walking with his people. And I believe beyond that, people of God at Cross Point Fellowship, that Satan would also love nothing more than to dupe God's people into saying, ah, what's the big deal? Say they love Jesus. What's a big deal? Man, I'm convinced Satan has an easy job of duping us in that and duping this context. I think it's an easy job. I feel like folks that are in that spot, they are behind like rebar concrete bunkers. And they're back there and they're hiding behind these bunkers, basically saying it's a hard target bunker that says, hey, God is love and you're a jerk. If you say there's no salvation apart from the church, I'm behind my bunker. God is love and you're a jerk. That's what I feel like. But man, we're not empty handed. We have something that God tells us does open eyes and does change lives and does shed light on context X. Name the context. And that is this powerful sword right here that we can give an account for with gentleness and respect in this context. And if we don't, how little do we love our neighbor? If we don't, how little do we love the person that we work with that says, yeah, I love Jesus, but I really got no use for the church? How little do we love our family member if they say, sure, I love Jesus. In fact, I've had an experience. I was baptized, but I've got no use for his people. If we don't lovingly encourage them that they can't love Jesus apart from God's people, it's not possible. It's like seesawing by yourself. Man. I can't imagine that apostasy in this context didn't seem pretty harmless as well. Because they're not talking about becoming Buddhists, remember? They're talking about becoming Jews again. They're talking about going back to just Yahweh. Going back to the sacrificial system. You can imagine how it would be pretty easy to say, man, what's the big deal? They're still religious. They still recycle. They cut their grass. <laughs> they wash their cars. You know, they don't cut people off on the interstate. They don't, they're not a left lane lingerer. <laughs> Jay Hall. Oh, great. Man, you see how easy it would be for them to sit behind those bunkers with that idea? But we're not empty-handed. They're not bunkers. We have some penetrating truth to lovingly share with those people, to encourage them with. Outside the church, there is no truth, no Christ, no salvation. That from Martin Luther. Beyond the limits of the church, we can hope for no forgiveness of sins and no salvation. 
that from John Calvin. You hopefully can see why when we talk mission work, when we talk mission work, we are talking church planting. You see how important it is to plant the church and not just get some converts. Would anybody not celebrate when a sinner turns to Christ? The, the angels do, myriad of angels, host of them. But the church hasn't been planted if there's just a convert. Man, I, we send our missionaries to go plant the church because the church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the one that's the people that are together in one heart and in one mind and one conscience, drawing near, holding fast, and considering how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And it's the church that Christ is coming back for. Man, make no mistake. Apostasy from the church is apostasy from Jesus. The second apostate is the presumptuous apostate, the high-handed sinner. Turn to Numbers chapter 15. This one's shorter, the time that we have invested, but I do want you to turn a couple of pages. I, I was talking with Christy about maybe breaking this up into two parts, and it just seemed like it should be dealt with together. Christy agreed with that, and I, I think um, it makes sense for us to consider this second apostate while we're here in the same room with the same thoughts and the same furniture in front of us. Apostasy isn't just saying I'm quitting Jesus and becoming an atheist. The high-handed sinner is another form of apostasy. Numbers chapter 15 verse 27 brings this person into focus and it's contrasted interestingly enough with the unintentional sinner. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand... Whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. It's a nice illustration of what this looks like just a few pages over. Turn over to Numbers chapter 25. I want to show you what the high-handed sinner looks like. As you're turning there, I'll just kind of remind you, you may not think of this, but Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7, when the Hebrews preacher is pointing his people back to the Day of Atonement, he reminds them that the Day of Atonement was for unintentional sin. There was no sin provision there for high-handed sin. The high-handed sinner did not find forgiveness in the Day of Atonement. Understand that. Here's an example of high-handed sin. In chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people, hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Now here's what that, here's the, the next paragraph, that's context. Watch the high-handed sinner. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. If you want to know what high-handed sin looks like, the nation of Israel is guilty of it at this point with the Baal of Peor. And this homeboy prancing through the camp with his Midianite gal is the best picture I can think of of high-handed sin. You could just imagine him. Moses and the other guys are sitting around weeping about the sin of Israel at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he's prancing on through. He's got his gal on his, on his arm right here. He's going to go meet mom and dad. Mom and dad, come meet my foreign gal, Midianite gal. And what does Phineas do? Phineas takes the spear and makes a, you know, a, a, a sin kebab out of them. You want to know what high-handed sin looks like? That's what high-handed sin looks like. And it's important to note in Hebrews... This Hebrews preacher does not go out of his way to distinguish between the sin of apostasy and other sins. I told you at the beginning of the sermon, this is clearly the sin of apostasy. But he doesn't work real hard at distinguishing between the sin of apostasy and other sins because here's the reality. Any sin has the potential of becoming high-handed. Any sin. And the consequences are grave. The sin of lust, adultery, anger, gluttony can become high-handed. And they can become an ongoing, deliberate sin that you are not repentant of. You may find yourself quite comfortable with besetting sin. And not only stop working to put it to death, you might even find comfort in it. You might find yourself thinking with this, a German poet I found. His name is Heinrich Haney. In 1856, homeboy is on his deathbed, and the priest asks him, he says, you think you're going to be forgiven of your sins? And listen to what he said. This guy is, it was, it was not a believer, but he sounds like the high-handed sinner to me, the presumptuous sinner. He says, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. That makes me want to shower, that kind of presumption. But the high-handed sinner prances through the camp, Of course God will forgive me. That's his job. That kind of thinking is either well on its way to apostasy or it's already there and doesn't realize it. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're nearly done this morning. Kids, you've done an amazing job. Thank you for being so attentive. Galatians chapter 5. 
want you to notice that this book, Galatians, is written this side of the Gospels. You probably know that, but you may not be thinking about that. It's written this side of the cross. It's written to a church. It's written to church folk. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Paul says to the church at Galatia, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, a warning to church folk. The furniture is in the same room. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What crazy stuff in the same room. It's alarming. But it's all there. The high-handed, unrepentant sinner who is practicing by design these things and is presumptuously thinking, presumptuously thinking, okay, of course God will forgive me. It's his job. That one will not find forgiveness at all. That one will not inherit the kingdom of heaven according to this passage. I want to encourage you. Turn to Matthew 18. I'm going to encourage you in one more thing. Matthew 18, but I want to encourage you as you think on this. You may be this morning doing sort of a, um, a scriptural selfie. Through the teaching of this passage or reading this passage or some of the places we've gone, you might be like holding the, the passage up, taking a look at yourself and saying, okay, well, where do I sit? I want to encourage you. I don't want to discourage you from doing a selfie. But I want to encourage you, rather than doing a snapshot, do a video. Because a snapshot of any of our lives at any given moment will show intentional sin. And likely ongoing sin. But a video will show over time the Holy Spirit's work in our life and the fruit of the walk with the Holy Spirit, of self-control growing in our lives and sin progressively being put to death by the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of sanctification. So a video would be a better view. A snapshot, and we're all doomed with Tertullian and Hermas. But a video may show you, hopefully will show you, movement and a strangulation of that sin that over time the Holy Spirit gives you victory from and the Holy Spirit puts to death. As self-control grows in the believer's life, the more and more you walk with the Lord, the more and more you walk with his people, the more and more you walk and stay in step with the Holy Spirit, sin should diminish. It should. It's supposed to. 
as we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. But after coming to a knowledge of the truth, know this. You're not expected to be perfect from that moment on. You can't be. Only he was. I'm not sure how Tertullian and Hermas reconciled that in the mirror, in the mornings. However, if in your video you see high-handed sin in your life and you're thinking to yourself, ah, of course he'll forgive me, it's a job, and there's no repentant movement in your life putting that sin to death, then you should be frightened. You should be. This morning, I don't want to discourage the worshiper on the journey of sanctification at all. But I also don't want to encourage the unrepentant, presumptuous apostate or near apostate that sin is okay. I don't want to discourage someone who's wrestling with besetting sin, and I don't want to comfort someone who's comfortable with high-handed sin. Because that's apostasy. Matthew 18 gives us a beautiful picture of what this looks like. We see it and have seen it. As hard as this may be to hear, we see it and have seen it. If you want to know what high-handedness looks like in the church, here's what it looks like in the church. Chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. I share and have shared often from this pulpit that over the years I have struggled with anger and being short with folks. I can be, and this may be alarming to those of you that hadn't ever heard any of this. I I didn't know he could. I'm capable. I'm capable. I can snap and have snapped at some of you, some that are most dear to me. And if I were approached after snapping at someone or being short or being ugly with someone, if that person approaches me and I listen to him, then I've gained my brother and he's gained his brother and we're reconciled. Man, all is good. That's what forgiveness and repentance look like. But if, on the other hand, I don't listen, then take two or take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If I then refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. If I have a pattern of being ugly with God's people and I, to you, you approach me and then you bring two to me and I say, you know what? Talk to the hand. That's how God's made me. You just have to learn to live with it. And I'm unrepentant and high-handed about it. I'm guilty of doing exactly what it says right here. And this passage tells us, Jesus tells us, tell it to the church. It's yet another example that you're part of a people. This doesn't take place if you're a free agent Christian out there on your own trying to do the verbs by yourself, which is impossible. Tell it to the church if I'm high-handed in unrepentance. And let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That person, if unrepentant, if I stay in a place of unrepentance and talk to the hand, that person is to be removed from the church. 1 Corinthians 5 is another reference for you. Read it. Remove the evil person from among you is what 1 Corinthians 5 tells us. That's some hard thoughts, but man, that's high-handed sin. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, you, the church, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you want to know what high-handedness 
looks like in our context, if you want some help with this, it's right here in front of us. Someone who is unrepentant to the point of being removed from the church is guilty of high-handed sin. Should they continue in unrepentance, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but an expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that's been set aside for the adversaries. Understand that. That's how grave church discipline is. Matthew 18. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fury of fire and a terrible, terrible judgment. I'd like to end this morning, just before the Lord's Supper, just this last closing thought. If if you're not in Hebrews, you're, you're probably not, you're in Matthew 18, turn over to Hebrews and let's land there. We started there this morning, let's land there with the very last verse that we were looking at. Verse 31. Verse 31 of chapter 10 in Hebrews says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oftentimes, this passage is used in a very negative sense. That, man, you're done for. If you find yourself in God's hands as, you know, out from under that umbrella of grace and in the white hot blaze of his glory and holiness and wrath, You're done for. It is appropriate to approach this verse that way, but that's not all that's being said in this verse contextually. It's not only a negative warning. It is best understood in both directions. And here's a nice translation from one of my dead commentators. It is a splendid, but it is an awful thing to say we know that we are of God. And I don't mean awful as in yucky awful. I mean awful as in like earthquake awful. That passage right there is telling us, man, it is no joke worshiping God. This isn't a club. We're not just a bunch of pals that just kind of get along with each other and hang out with each other. We are a bunch of worshipers clinging to life and clinging to each other as we together draw near, hold fast, and consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. This faith requires sober commitment. That's why I'm okay with preaching an hour and a half long sermon, however long it's been, because I need it. I don't need to preach it. I need to hear it. I want my wife to hear it. I want my kids to hear it. There's too much at stake. We're not a club. It is a splendid, but it is an awful thing to say we know that we are of God. Let me pray, and then we'll have our supper together. You know, before I pray, let me just share some, I had a, some additional thoughts that are just very brief. What does this mean for us? I was about to leave out the what does this mean for us thoughts. This would take about 30 seconds. It means to hold fast to Christ is to hold fast with the church. I want to say that again. To hold fast to Christ is to hold fast with the church. 
That's what this means. It means those who are not part of a meaningful or a meaningful part of the people of God are in great peril. Great peril. It means we should very appropriately be encouraging others to come and taste and see. Some of you are here because someone said, come and taste and see. They probably didn't say it like that because you would have been sort of like, that's kind of weird. You're very dramatic. But they just said, hey, man, would you join me Sunday? I'd love to have you. I'd love to come worship with us. Man, we should very appropriately say, come, taste and see, hear the preaching of the word. Come sing songs full of true things to our creator. Come cling with us to life through the work of Christ. I'm thankful it's not hopeless for the free agent Christian. And I'm thankful it's not hopeless for the high-handed sinner. It's not For both can repent and step back under the umbrella of grace with the church. And I ask you this question as as I pray. Do you love them enough to bear this message? Do you love them enough to bear this message even if they think you might think you're a jerk? Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful for truth. I'm so thankful for the, heart, the Holy Spirit and his work in opening our eyes to what's true. I'm so thankful for the many passages that you give us and many views that you give us that help us balance out what's true. Lord, I pray that we will be faithful to walk in what we've heard. I pray that we will be faithful to encourage others to come and taste and see. I pray that we'll be relentless because we love them that much. And all of that, Lord, I pray for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to share a passage with you from Luke 22 for the Lord's Supper this morning. Luke 22, it's just crazy. It it illustrates the morning. It illustrates the message. Listen to this, and then we'll take our supper together. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as 
it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Apostasy is illustrated right there at our Lord's table. A man who spent three years with Jesus. A man that we trust that God used in some way. He might be one that stands before the Lord at some point and says, I cast out demons in your name. I did this, I did that, I did all kind of stuff. And the Lord says, I never knew you. Leaves the table after three years of ministry. And he didn't look like Sam Cobra, apparently. He didn't have a black hat on and a scowl. Because when Jesus said this, they're all turning to each other saying, well, is it me? Is it me? Could it be me? They didn't all look at Judas and say, I knew it. I knew it was you all along. Man, what a sober table this is. What a sober table. Let's distribute the elements and then we'll take and eat. Someone else is closing out the morning uh, at the end of the morning than me. Someone else other than me. And uh, other than I, I always get those mixed up. Um, so I want to say this before we take the supper just to make sure you hear it. I don't expect to preach a message like this where everybody's just like, ah, okay, that's just crystal clear and I'm settled and I don't have any questions. I mean, that, that, that's, this is true for any sermon. It is not an offense to me if you approach with questions. It does not offend me. It tells me you're listening. And it tells me that you're working through it and processing it. So it doesn't offend me, okay? I want to set you free in that. I want to encourage, uh, should you like to talk about something, hey, what about this, what about that, or what does this mean, what does this imply? Okay. I mean, there lots of questions can come up from this. There will likely be another follow-on email this week dealing with can you lose your salvation because that will be a very reasonable question from this, okay? And I'll probably answer that this week. So if you had that question poised and ready, you can... You can still ask it, but it'd probably be um, in the form of an email that I'll follow up with that. So, um, but I want to encourage that. As we take and eat and drink right now, I just want to just remind you that together we are Christ's clingers. We are clinging to Christ, and this is a sober table. There's nothing. I mean, we can have lighthearted times together. We really can, and we may have a lighthearted time and a supper. There's nothing against that. But in general, realize it is a splendid thing, but it's an awful thing to say we are God's. We are His. It's not a joke. We're not a club. Massive consequences to bailing on this. Don't leave the table ever, ever, ever. We need it. Let's take and eat. And let's take and drink. Let's continue in song.